The book of Joshua, chapter 1, verse 11. Brace yourselves. Joshua chapter 1, verse 11. I just love the sound of those thin little Bible pages shuffling. (laughs) Chapter 1, verse 11. Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. Again, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess it. Father, again, we recognize we have a possession. We have been given a great gift in Jesus Christ and in our salvation. And now, Father, we pray that you will empower this body, this fellowship, and each of us as individuals to take possession of what you've already given. Father, you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Teach us to take possession. And Father, to do so, prepare us. And Holy Spirit, teach us your word this morning. In Jesus we pray. Amen. I want to talk about Jesus. He's my rock, he's my rock. I am so excited to share this with you this morning. I I am... I consider myself one of the most blessed people on the face of the planet because I get to show up on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights and various other times and just talk about the Lord and open up the Bible and read and share and people show up for that. And, and I know it can't be me. It's a good word. And God's word does not come back empty. And God has a word for us this morning, and I'm I'm excited, and I said brace yourselves a few minutes ago, because today, this very morning, we are going to go through the entire book of Joshua. The whole thing. You see a lot of extra verses there. Joshua chapter 1 through 24. And here's the reason. The book of Joshua is a true historical account of the conquest of Joshua and Israel into the land of Canaan. However, it is also an amazing prophetic account of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Which is awesome. And I want to be clear about one absolute and unequivocal fact. Before we go any further, Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming back. This is a certainty. This is an absolute. More absolute than anything else I could say this morning. Jesus Christ is coming back and the Bible speaks clearly and resolutely about His return. In fact, nearly a third of of the Bible is prophecy and deals with prophetic themes. And for those who say, well, I'm just not into all that prophecy stuff. Listen, if you're into the Bible, you are into prophecy. You cannot be into the Bible and not be into prophecy. I would say if you're not into prophecy, you haven't read much of the Bible. 
Because this is a book that is given to us to prepare us for the things which are to come. As much as it's a book for us to live life today and to guide us through the paths of life, much more so, it is a book of preparation. And just as Joshua said to the people, prepare provisions, get ready. It's about time. We're going to go in. We're going to take the land. Jesus spoke with the same sense of urgency. Jesus said, Mark 13, 37, What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. I like that. He's talking to people gathered around him and he says, Hey, what I'm saying to you, I'm saying to all. The great thing about the word all is it is all inclusive. It means you and me. And Jesus would say to you and to me today, as much as he said to his disciples gathered around him, be on the alert. Be ready. I am coming back. Do you live with that kind of anticipation? Do you function day in and day out with that kind of expectation for the return of Jesus? Christmas is now two weeks away. And what child is not on high alert at this time of year? We had in our house a little situation I, I need to share with you. As, as many parents, we get the presents we're going to give our kids for Christmas, you know, and helping Santa out, of course. And we tuck a lot of these things away. We'll hide them under the bed or in the closet, places that we don't think the kids are going to look, right? I remember getting busted myself for going Christmas present searching when I was 10 years old. It was for a Whirlybird helicopter, the greatest gift I would ever receive for Christmas, and I found it two weeks ahead. And I pulled it out and looked at it and was like, yes, I got it. And then I put it back into the closet, right where it was, went into the kitchen and proceeded to say to my mom, boy, I hope I get that Whirlybird helicopter. And she looked at me with those blazing, piercing mother eyes, and she knew. And she said, did you go searching for presents? Yes, I did. Well, we're just going to have to take that one back to the store. I was so depressed. For two weeks, until Christmas morning when I realized my parents had fooled me and it was there under the tree. Anticipation. You see kids get wild-eyed as they approach Christmas. And we had this situation happen in our house this last week. I could not believe, you're not going to believe this. We had some gifts in packages, in bags, stuffed under the bed, in that safe place. And one of ours snuck into our room and dug through and found his favorite present. It was Reggie. Our dog, Reggie, got under the bed, pulled out some, and he's not here so I'll share you, pulled out some pajamas that we got Hayden for Christmas, pulled them out, pushed them aside, dug around and found the little yellow stuffed duck that we got him for Christmas that was in the middle of our bedroom floor chewing on the thing when Cheryl came home and now we can't return it because it's got spit all over it. Unbelievable. Even my dog is looking forward to Christmas. Freaky little dog. But my household, the kids are on high alert because they're expecting something. And I say this to you because I wonder, do we live with that kind of expectation? Man, when I was teaching the Revelation study every week, day in and day out, I was just looking for Jesus to come. Man, when you're studying that stuff, it's just when it's all in your mind constantly, you have that expectation, that anticipation. And we, said, we finished that in the summertime, and I just realized in preparing this last week that I had settled. 
I realize that that anticipation and excitement of Jesus' return hasn't been a day-to-day experience for me this last fall. And I thought, wow, how easily do we slip back into the everyday rather than to the constant expectation. And I tell you this again to say this. The expectation of Jesus' return is critical to essential Christian living. This is something that so much, so many of us miss. And we wonder why our Christian lives become dull or or heavy or sorrowful or or why we can't seem to really get on to the next thing or why maybe there's just not that emotional high that we wish we could have when we go on retreats or, or to conferences or things like that. Gang, living on high alert is indispensable to effective Christian living. It does a couple of things for us. It, it causes us to be prepared and it purifies us. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he calls our preparation the living hope. It's not a dead hope that we have. It's a hope that's alive. It's a hope that consumes us. Peter says the Lord has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Later Peter writes, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is a day in, day out occurrence. Peter says live that way. And you will be prepared. When he comes. And John says that this living hope, it purifies us as we go. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So the next time someone says you're crazy to fixate on the second coming of Jesus Christ, you tell them, I'm not crazy, I'm just being prepared and purified. That's the deal. I am getting ready. And it's changing me, this readiness, this anticipation. Because I am living for that day, the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke in no uncertain terms. Be ready. Be watchful. Stay on the alert. Prepare yourselves. He said in John 14, chapter 2, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And in my favorite verse in the entire Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Anticipation. Expectation. Now you Bible students know that for every New Testament principle, there's an Old Testament picture. That's the amazing thing about the Word of God, is though the Old Testament is a a book of history, and we see so much of what we know actually happened with Israel, that history and those historical accounts are pictures of exactly what we're taught in the New Testament. And the book of Joshua is no exception because the story of the conquest of Joshua is a picture, a portrait of the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. The second time, the second coming of Christ. I want to give you this morning some specific things you can jot down to see this prophetic connection. We're just going to wander through the book back and forth a little bit. If you're a note taker, jot these things down. Even if you're not, you might want to make a listing of these things because it's, it's pretty stunning to realize that the book of Joshua, a history of Israel, parallels precisely with the book of Revelation about the second coming of Jesus. Now I consider doing this at the end of our Joshua study several weeks from now. 
And if I know, let's launch into this at the very beginning. And as we study through Joshua, these things hopefully will come to mind. And you'll see them even more clearly. But for this morning, several items. Number one. Number one, the distinguishing name of Joshua. This is the most obvious connection. The distinguishing name of Joshua. Back in Numbers chapter 13, we have a knock list. It's Moses' knock list of spies going into the land of Canaan. Twelve men listed, and among these, in verse 8 of Numbers 13, from the tribe of Ephraim, is a man named Hoshea, the son of Nun. Hoshea. Now verse 16 of that same chapter says, These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. But Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. One of those little verses, okay, so Moses changed the guy's name. No. Don't just wander by that. Why? Why did Moses do it? Hoshea means salvation. Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Moses takes one of these twelve spies, one man, and he changes the name. Why the name change? And I remind you that though Moses was a great deliverer and a strong leader and a decisive nation builder, Moses was first and foremost a prophet. Listed as the greatest prophet in the history of Israel. Moses the prophet changes the name of Hoshea to Joshua and I believe it was because of prophetic significance. Matthew chapter 1 verse 20 Behold an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying Joseph son of David do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. But listen, when Mary called her little boy in from playing with her with his friends, she wouldn't have said, Savior, it's dinner time. Come on in. Oh, holy man, child, time to wash up. She wouldn't have said, Jesus Christos, clean up your toys. What she would have said is, Joshua, come on in. Because Jesus' name is Joshua. That's what he was called, the Greek equivalent. Jesus in the Greek is Joshua. His Hebrew name, his given name, is the same as this name, Joshua. And that is not coincidental. And it's not because Mary decided of herself or Joseph decided, Wow, Joshua is a great figure in Israel. Let's call our son that. No, the angel said, You shall call him Joshua. Now, I personally believe that this is prophetic. I believe that Moses in the name change changed the name because God wanted Joshua to be a picture of our Joshua, of Jesus Christ. The distinguishing name of Joshua itself sets the pace for a prophetic study of this book. Number two, the driving out of the land grabbers. There's the distinguishing name, so that's the first hint that maybe there's something to this book of Joshua having to do with Yeshua, Jesus, our Joshua. But the second thing is the driving out of the land grabbers. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Lord says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. And Joshua, in this role, in this Yeshua role, portrays Jesus as he leads his people to drive out the usurpers of the land of Canaan. Now check this out. The word usurper. I use specifically and purposefully for a usurper is someone who takes something that does not belong to him. And make no mistake about it, even today those who would drive Israel into the sea are usurpers. 
Those who would live on the land of Israel that God gave to Israel are usurpers. God gave the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We've seen that, we've studied it. He gave it to them, but He gave it to them in perpetuity. He gave it to them eternally. He made a covenant saying, this land is your land. All of it I have given to you. But the children of Jacob, well, they had to travel out of the land and go down to Egypt because there was a famine in the land. And the only place they could live and survive the famine was in the land of Goshen in Egypt because Jacob's son Joseph, you might recall, had been sold into slavery in Egypt. And somehow, miraculously, supernaturally, had risen through the ranks of the Egyptian government. And so was in Egypt. And Jacob and his boys, when they realized this and found out, Joseph invited them to come down. Come down, I'll take care of you, protect you against the famine. So they moved out of the land, God promised them, living in Egypt. And they were away for 400 years. Now they're coming back. But across that span of 400 years, usurpers began to take the land. Other people began to move in. The Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the, all the ites that we've talked about. They began to come in and take the land and usurp what was not theirs. And the parallel gang is perfect to the very end time scenario we read about in the newspapers, watch on cable, and read online every day. What's happening in Israel today is a battle of those who have been given the land and those who are usurpers of the land. The entire world groans under the threat of usurpers. People ask, why, why is it that there is a crime and hatred and rape and violence and terror in the world today? How could God allow that? God doesn't want that. But gang, there is a usurper in the world today. Considering Israel, it's been said that if the Palestinians, by the way, would lay down their arms, there would be peace. But if the Jewish people laid down their arms, there would be no Israel. That's a truism. Now if you watch the news today, that's certainly not the picture you would get. Both sides just have to strive for peace and, and everything will be fine. Not so. Because what is behind the mentality of the usurpers in the land is the destruction and annihilation and complete decimation of Israel. They choose not to even see it exist. And you can look at any Saudi Arabian textbook, Jordanian textbook, you can look at a Syrian textbook for 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th graders and look at a map that shows the Middle East. Israel is not even on the map. It's not recognized. It doesn't exist. This last week, uh, President Ahmadinejad, the guy from Iran, came out once again and even more strongly. And he said this before, but this time it was proclaimed as the, the, the uh, position of Iran that the Holocaust did not happen. That six million Jews were not murdered. That it was all a hoax and a myth. The usurpers who are in the land. And Joshua, Joshua in his day, and the people of Israel were not only given the land, but they were used by the Lord. They were the hand of God to go into the land and to drive out the usurpers, those who took the land from the people God gave it to in the first place. But there's a greater picture here for us than just the Middle East. Because a usurper has taken the world. The reason why there's hatred and anger and pain and sorrow and murder and violence in the world today is because Satan has usurped the world. He's taking control 
of something that does not belong to him. Genesis 1.28 tells us God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Absolute dominion and authority was given to man. I've made this earth for you. I've put you in this earth to tend it, to have authority over it, the Lord says. But Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8, speaking of this gift of world dominion, says the following, In subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not in subject to him. He's talking about mankind. In giving Adam and Eve and all of mankind, there was nothing that wasn't subjected to him. But now, now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. The Hebrew writer says there's a problem. <laughs> it was given to man. But it's no longer under the authority of man. You see, man man was originally given authority over the earth, but we lost the farm. Adam and Eve lost it in the Garden of Eden, and ever since, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's why in the media today, people don't get the Israeli-Palestinian crisis. Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. Uh, the lies that are propagated, there are times I just sit back and say, how is this possible? Why don't people get it? The truth is out there. It's not as if it hasn't been published. Pick up the book from Time Immemorial by Joan Peters. It, it details the entire situation. She's not even a Christian. Well, she may be now, I don't know. But when she wrote it, she wasn't writing from any religious perspective. And yet the truth is out there, but people don't see it. John chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said... The ruler of this world will be cast out. The ruler of this world? Yes, Satan. The God of this world, according to Paul. The ruler of this world, according to Jesus. And Jesus then said, But I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And that's what Jesus did when he came the first time. He paid the debt. He bought back the title deed that we lost in the garden. And since the time of the cross, Satan has been nothing more than a usurper. Present in the world, moving to and fro about the world, doing his thing in the world, but he doesn't belong. He is a usurper. And the title deed at this point rests in the hands of Jesus, soon to be reopened and reclaimed. And that's why, my friends, there's pain in the world because we have a usurper. The picture of Joshua, or the book of Joshua, pictures this historically and prophetically. The people who flowed into the land, they didn't buy it. They just flowed into it. You realize right now there's only one document that details any ownership in the promised land. One document. And you're holding it in your hands. And as a matter of fact, if you want to get even more specific, within this document where we see the Lord giving the land to Abraham, we also have a title deed in here that has remained for 4,000 years. The title deed tells us that Abraham paid good money for the cave at Machpelah and the field there. That's the only title deed that anyone has on record of, in, of ever paying any money to buy any land in the Middle East. And it's in your Bibles. It's amazing. God gifted the land to Israel back in Genesis 15 and following. And when Israel returned to the land, they had to drive out the usurpers. And so it will be when Jesus comes, he will once again drive out those who have usurped the land. And not just the land in the Middle East, but the entire world. He will drive out the usurper. By the way, 
Does anybody know how long it took Joshua to take back the promised land? You think? Jim says seven years. Let's see if Jim's right. Turn to Joshua 14. Joshua chapter 14. Verse 7. Joshua 14, verse 7. Caleb is speaking, our good friend Caleb. Mad dog Caleb. I mean, that's what Caleb's name means, you may recall. It means dog, so he's our go-get-it kind of guy. He's a dogged fighter. And Caleb says, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear, but I followed the Lord my God fully. Boy, I, I want to be able to say that. You know, when Jesus comes, I want to say, I follow the Lord my God fully. And so he goes on and says, verse 9, So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. Now behold, Caleb goes on, the Lord has let me live, just as he spoke these 45 years. From the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. So consider this, Caleb, like Joshua, was 40 when he spied out the land that first time. And then the people wandered for 40 years, and now Caleb is 85. So do the math, how many years did it take them to take the land? Five years. But Jim was right. It's not just five years. Hang on a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 14 tells us the following. Now the time it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Zered was 38 years. We round up to 40. But the specific time that they wandered in the wilderness was 38 years. So now add 2 to your original 5 and it took them 7 years to take the land of Canaan. 7 years. So what? So Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 along with the book of Revelation chapters 6 through 19 detail a seven year period of time in which the usurper of this world will be driven out. It took Joshua and the people seven years to drive out the usurpers and take the land. It will take seven years for God to do the same. It is prophetic, it's amazing, and it's truth. And that seven year period is called the tribulation. It's what Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 7, Jeremiah called the time of Jacob's trouble. And it will be a time of trouble for the Jewish people on earth when this happens. A specific seven year timetable beginning with the onslaught of Antichrist and ending with a massive battle in the valley of Megiddo in which Israel, Jesus gloriously returns to Israel and drives out the usurpers in the same way that Joshua and the people drove out the usurpers in his day. There is prophetic significance here, gang. The determination or distinction of the name of Joshua. The driving out, even down to the timing of the usurpers. And number three in our list now, the description of the nations. Turn to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. Just keep your Bible open to Joshua. We're going to flip back and forth in the book as we, as we race through it and breakneck speed this morning. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 10 And number three in our outline, the description of nations. 
Verse 10, Joshua chapter 3. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Perizzite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. How many nations is that? Count them up real quick. Seven. Alright, good. Seven nations are listed here. Joshua is speaking of these nations. Now this is interesting because if you go back to Genesis 15, verses 18 through 21, God gives Abram the land. But at that time, what he tells Abram is, I'm giving you the land that right now is, is held by, and he lists out several nations that are similar to this list, but he leaves out, well, he adds three more. So in God's listing to Abraham back in Genesis 15, there are ten nations. Now all of a sudden, Joshua says, By this you shall know the living God is among you, when you drive out these seven nations. Originally ten, now there's seven. And it's incredible as it relates to what Antichrist will do, the little usurper who is under the thumb of the great usurper, Satan. The Bible tells us that Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, and by the way, he's not going to come on the scene with a t-shirt that says, Hello, my name is Antichrist. Okay? He's not going to show up wearing little horns. There's not going to be anything that distinguishes, is, distinguishes him as Antichrist. In fact, he is going to wow the world. He's going to be impressive. People are going to want to follow him. And the Bible tells us when he comes up on the scene, he will begin by ruling over ten nations, but he will dispossess three of those nations and end up with seven, exactly as we see with Joshua. Originally there were ten nations in Canaan, now there are only seven nations. Same thing, the description of nations. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7 tells us about this. After this, Daniel says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth, and it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now in this description of beasts, this is Daniel's vision of how God views the nations of the world as beastly. And it goes on and says in verse 8 of Daniel chapter 7, While I was contemplating the horns, this beast had ten horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And you read that and go, man, what a funky dream. But then Daniel goes on to explain, to interpret it for us. He says in verse 23 of Daniel chapter 7, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And that's important because we've yet to see a kingdom devour the whole earth after the time of the original four, which was Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece. And then comes the fourth kingdom, which is Rome which at that time had conquered the known world, but there was much of the world Rome never conquered. And Daniel tells us this fourth kingdom, which I'm not going to go into it now, but will be, I believe, a revived Roman Empire. This fourth kingdom will devour the whole earth. Not just the known world, the whole earth. This is something that has not yet happened. 
And it says this kingdom will tread it down and crush it. Now listen, he says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And another will arise before them, and he will be different from the previous ones, and he will subdue three kings. So suddenly, in the end times, it begins with ten kings in the land, and and it's reduced now to seven kings. Same thing in the land of Canaan. You see the distinction, the picture there, from from, uh, Joshua all the way to the time of the end. Interesting. Seven nations to take down and seven years in which it will be done. It is a picture of the tribulation period, again described in Revelation chapter 6 through 19. Now this world leader, Antichrist, you could call him the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, the beast. These are names the Bible ascribes to him. And by the way, the Bible does deal with him as an actual personality, not as some kind of vague generic thing. It's kind of like people today will say, oh, there's not really Satan. There's just kind of that sense of evil. That's just kind of a name that God threw out there or Jesus used as kind of a picture of of badness in the world. There's not really a Satan. No, there is a Satan. Jesus talked to him. Jesus addressed him. Jesus warned about him very specifically. And in the same way that there is a Satan, there will be an Antichrist. One who would place himself instead of Christ. Another Christ. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8 says, That lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. By the way, that's power. I mean, I've had bad breath, but I've never slayed anybody. The Lord will slay Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, with the speaking. And by the way, what does that indicate? The Word. The Word of God. That sharp two-edged sword will take out Antichrist. But Paul goes on in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 and says, This one who is coming in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness, for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. You might say, well, Rick, you just left the nation thing and you went off on Antichrist. I just did that to tell you, hang on, because I want to come back to Antichrist in a few minutes. Hold that thought. I've got some other things I have to say first. Number four in our list. Number four. Another parallel here between Joshua and and Revelation and the end time scenario. The destruction of Jericho. The destruction of Jericho. Turn to Joshua chapter 6. And this is fascinating because even in this one battle... There are things that are so clearly and obviously uh, seen and spoken about in Revelation that you see them here and and you know God is painting a picture for us. Joshua chapter 6 verse 1. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out. No one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once, and you shall do so for six days. Verse 4, also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. This is an amazing and obvious parallel between this book and Revelation itself. Revelation chapter 8 through 11 details what we call the trumpet judgments. The blowing of seven trumpets that will be the downfall of wickedness on planet earth. Seven trumpets blown by seven angels bringing about serious judgment on a Christ-rejecting and sinful world. And here we start out in the conquest of Jericho. Why did God do this? I mean, that's the question you really need to ask when God does things in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that are seemingly bizarre. 
Why would he have the people circle the city for seven days and blow seven? What's, what's up with that, Lord? I mean, you just in the mood for sevens? What, what's this about? And the reality is, once again, God is painting a picture so that we can see from what was done what is going to happen, what is coming. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 tells us, The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And verse 19 of that same chapter says, The temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm by the way skip back look at Joshua chapter 6 verse 16 it tells us at the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets Joshua said to the people shout for the Lord has given you the city the sounding of the trumpet it delineates or it shows the taking of the city as the sounding of the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation denotes the taking, the retaking, or the kingdom coming in to planet earth once again. Verse 20 says, So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Now something to notice about this, the Ark of the Covenant was taken into this battle, which normally was forbidden. It shouldn't have been. And yet, here again at the blowing of the seven trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation, what appears when that seventh trumpet is blown? The Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. Seen in heaven, Revelation 11.19 There it is, and the temple of God which is in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant appeared. The parallels are again amazing. By the way, something about Jericho. Maybe you did or you didn't know. Jericho, the name for Jericho is Bet Yera, which means, Jericho means the house of the moon god. The house of the moon god. For you students of Middle Eastern things, you probably know that the sign of the crescent moon is the sign of Islam. That Muhammad's God, Allah, was not originally the God of all things. Originally, Allah was the name of the moon God of Muhammad's family tribe. And Muhammad co-opted this tribal God, little g, to become the God, big g, of, of his religion of Islam. And I say that because, again, I just want to to caution you that Allah is not the equivalent of the God of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Allah is not the equivalent of Jesus Christ. Allah, Allah was a God little g. And the Bible tells us that the only things that God's little g truly are is demons. We need to understand that. It's also interesting that Jericho is the first city that was conquered by the Israelites. Guess what the first city was that was given to the PLO? Jericho. First city conquered, first city given back. It's even the headquarters today of the PLO. Number five in our list. Another interesting parallel. Turn to Joshua chapter 9. And number five, the decision of the Gibeonites. Now this is one of those things. It's just too, it's too specific 
not to be an amazing prophetic parallel. The decision of the Gibeonites, and don't worry, we're on number five, we only have about six or seven or eight more to go. The decision of the Gibeonites, Joshua chapter 9 verse 3 says, When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard that Joshua heard what he had done to Jericho and to Ai, they also acted craftily, and they set out as envoys and took worn out sacks on their donkeys and wineskins worn out and torn and mended and worn out and patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothes on themselves and all the bread of their provision was dry and had become crumbled. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and they said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore, make a covenant with us. And the men of Israel said to the Hivites, that's who the Gibeonites were. Perhaps you are living within our land. Now then, how shall we make a covenant with you? They're saying, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. What if you live here? Because we're supposed to drive out everybody in this land. You're telling us you're from a far country. They said, they said to Joshua, verse 8, Oh, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you and where are you, do, you, do you come from? And they said, Your servants have come from a very far country because of the fame of the Lord your God. And we have heard the report of God and all that he did. Skip down to verse 14. It says, So the men of Israel took some of their provisions and did not ask for the counsel of the Lord, which is always a mistake. They did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore an oath to them. And it came about at the end of three days after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors and they were, they were living within their land. Oops, we made a mistake. These were people that were inhabitants of the land. We were supposed to have driven them out. Skip down to verse 27. It says that Joshua, they ended up keeping their word, making this covenant. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. He made a covenant with the Gibeonites. But the covenant was this. You tricked us, but we already made the covenant with you that we would protect you and that we would be in, in, in cahoots with you, in league with you. So we're going to keep our word, but you're going to be our servants for the rest of your days in this land. You want to stay in this land? You want our protection? You are now our servants. And the Gibeonites became that. And through the entire history of Israel, all the way to the fall of Jerusalem, the Gibeonites were present in the land as servants of Israel, specifically, and this is important, they were servants who cut wood and brought water for use in the temple in Jerusalem. Now going back, this would specifically and precisely fulfill an earlier prophecy of Noah. Genesis chapter 9 verse 24 says, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And in this, that prophecy is fulfilled. Canaan, people of Canaan, Hivites, became servants of Israel, just as Noah said would happen. But there's another connection here. In that time of tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period, there are going to be a bunch of people who are just like the Gibeonites. A group of people who will be there in that time of tribulation. This is after the church has been taken out. The church is raptured, protected, tucked away up in heaven with the Lord. And this group of people will suddenly remember possibly what you told them what you, you shared with them, or what maybe they heard someone speak on TV, or, or something that they had heard, or maybe they read the Left Behind series just for fun, but it's all going to kind of click in, and they will realize that they missed the last boat out, and they will clue in, and the Bible tells us, Revelation chapter 7, there will be multiplied millions who will come to faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. 
Now you might say, well, why not just wait for that then? You know, why believe now? Why not just wait? See, if these things happen, if, if your church thing is rapture and you all disappear, then I'll believe in Jesus. And I would advise strongly against that because you may not even survive to make a decision of belief. And if you do, it will cost you. As John Corson likes to say, don't lose your head, use your head. <laughs> use it now, believe in Jesus now, don't lose it during the tribulation, it will be a horrible time. But there will be, in spite of that, multiplied millions, we can call them tribulation saints, believers who come to faith in Christ in the tribulation, they're not Jewish people, they're Gentiles who come to faith. And they are not the church. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, After these things I looked. And behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hand. These people are in heaven now. Why? Because they died in the tribulation. And we're told a bit further down in verse 13 of Revelation 7 that one of the elders answered saying to me, John's writing, saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And John said, my Lord, you know. Which is another great thing to say. Lord, I have no idea what I'm doing, but you know. You know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And these believers who will be martyred for their faith during that tribulation period, these believers are just like the Gibeonites in that war will be declared against anyone who aligns themselves with Israel. And these believers will do that. They will align themselves with Israel. Having faith in Jesus Christ, they will recognize what God is doing. They will align themselves with Israel. And Revelation chapter 12 verse 17 says, The dragon, that is Satan, was enraged with the woman, that is Israel, and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. Who's that? Those who keep the, hold the commandments and keep the testimony of Jesus? We're talking about people who have faith in Jesus. And Satan will go off to make war with them because at this point, in Revelation 12, it talks about Israel being protected. They're tucked away in a safe place in the wilderness. And so anyone else in the world who now has aligned themselves with Israel, who, who believes in the Lord, I'll tell you what, they're going to go after him. Antichrist, Satan, will attack anyone who has aligned themselves with Israel. By the way, because the United States is aligned with Israel, Iran hates the United States. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why 9-11 happened. If we were not aligned with Israel as a nation, 9-11 would not be a thing in our national memory now. It wouldn't have occurred. That is why Osama bin Laden and all of Al-Qaeda did what they did. Because we're aligned with Israel. The Gibeonites aligned themselves with Israel and they're going to get into trouble for it. They made a decision... But by the way, one other quick thing on this point. Jesus indicates that at least one of the standards of judgment for those who live through the tribulation will be how they treated Israel. And I would encourage you today to be among those who align yourself with Israel and treat Israel well because God says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, verse 40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. And we tend to take that parable of the sheep and the goats there, we take that parable and we say, oh, well, that's just talking about taking care of the poor. You can make that illusion, but specifically and in context, 
I believe it's talking about Israel. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, said our Jewish Jesus, you have done it to me. But what's going to happen to those who come to faith during the tribulation and are martyred because of Antichrist? Antichrist. Well, I think I missed something here in my book. No, I guess it's coming up. Revelation 7.15, referring to the tribulation saints, says, For this reason they are before, watch this, before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. What do they do after this is all said and done? Those who are like the Gibeonites, who are not the raptured church, they are not the bride of Christ. The bride is taken out. The marriage feast of the Lamb happens. That is all for the church. But for those who come to faith during that tribulation period, they have a role to play. It's a different role than those who are saved among those in the church. They will serve day and night in the temple. What is it that the Gibeonites had to do or did in their covenant with Joshua? They hewed wood and they brought water for the temple servants. And the Bible says that's what will happen to those who are martyred during the tribulation. They will become servants of the temple. They have a different role from you and me. They have a different role from the church. They'll serve the temple needs while you and I will rule and reign with Jesus. Now you might say, okay, Rick, first of all, you're going into all kinds of stuff that you lost me about three bus stops back. If I did, pick up the Revelation series. That's why we did it. Go through it, and this will all make perfect sense to you. But this whole idea of ruling and reigning with Jesus gang, it's a biblical certainty. Revelation chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. Revelation 5, verse 10. Revelation 20, verse 6. Spells it out, black and white. Those who are saved, those who are caught up, will rule and reign with Jesus in that time called the Millennial Kingdom. Why? Why do those who are in the church today get that special distinction, while those who come to faith in the tribulation don't get that distinction? Why is it that this group gets to rule and reign with Jesus while this group, though they're covered and protected by the Lord, they have to serve in the temple? What's the difference? The difference is this. John 20, 29, Jesus said, Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You right now are among a people who have not seen the things that will be seen during that tribulation period. And you read through that, Revelation 6 through 19, it is mind-boggling what will happen. Angels flying in the sky saying, Repent, believe in the Lord. There will be witnesses in Jerusalem calling out, Believe in the Lord, give your faith to Jesus. God pulls out all the stops during this time of wrath to still try to save people. It will be visible, it will be obvious. You and I live in a time where, though we don't see, yet we believe. And God is so big on faith that He is pleased anytime someone believes though they do not see. Number six on the list. Let's hurry up here. The drama of the false man of peace. The drama of the false man of peace. Now what happens to the Gibeonites is interesting because you go into chapter 10. Don't worry, there are several of these chapters that are all kind of bundled together. But chapter 10 tells us in verse 1, Joshua, Now it came about when Adonai Zedek, it's a great name, Adonai Zedek, some of you young mothers-to-be might consider that. Don't consider that one. It's too weird. Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai and had utterly destroyed it just as he had done to Jericho and its king. And so, so he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were within their land. Verse 2, that he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were mighty. Therefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, 
note that, sent word to Hoham, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us watch this, let us attack Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the sons of Israel. And so now this king, this Adonai Zedek, wants to attack Gibeon because they align themselves with Israel. Why would Adonai Zedek do that? And who is this Adonai Zedek? And why have I mentioned him this morning? Gang, he is a picture of Antichrist. Interesting picture. The name Adonai Zedek. It means the Lord of Righteousness. And he reigns, he is king in Jerusalem, the city of peace. You could call him the Lord of Righteousness and the King of Peace. But Adonai Zedek is neither one. Adonai Zedek wants to take out the Gibeonites because of their alignment with Israel. And Daniel tells us in the same way, Antichrist will appear to be a man of peace. But like Adonai Zedek in Joshua chapter 10, Antichrist will be all about destruction. That will be his purpose, his focus. Daniel chapter 8 verse 25 tells us through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He shall magnify himself in his heart and listen, by peace he shall destroy many. A false peace. Antichrist will come across as a great orator, great speaker. He'll appear as a wise leader. And he'll bring along a great plan for peace, which I personally believe is going to be a plan that somehow divides the Temple Mount in Jerusalem to where there can be a Jewish temple alongside the Muslim Dome of the Rock Mosque. Antichrist is going to bring this plan, and it's going to blow the world away because everyone will say, finally a man of peace. Finally someone who has an answer. Oh, we can listen to this guy, we can follow this guy, but gang, Antichrist peace will be a false peace. Revelation 6.2 says, I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer, and it's speaking of Antichrist. Now, there are those theologians who study Revelation and say, no, well, maybe that's speaking of Jesus, because he's riding a white horse, and he's got a little crown and everything. How do we know this isn't Jesus? Well, there are many reasons, but all you have to do is look at the posse that follows this rider on the white horse, and it includes the riders of war, famine, and death. So his cronies are not guys that you want to ride with, okay? And understand this about peace, by the way, in, in the world today. For all the protest signs that you might see in Anacortes or Oak Harbor or all over the place, no matter how well-intentioned someone's desire for peace may be in the world, peace will not come to this world through the agency of man. We will not affect peace in this world. Doesn't mean we don't try. Doesn't mean we don't seek after it and, and, and attempt to be peacemakers like our Father, but we're not going to do it. We are not going to bring peace to this world. It's, it's, a, it's an impossibility because we all are embedded with this awful sin nature. And the moment you think there's going to be peace, and it's just amazing, again, going back to Israel, you, you watch the dance as Israel keeps giving up land because they so desperately want peace. And yet the, the verbiage and the rhetoric on the side of the Palestinians and those who support them is the destruction of Israel. And the only reason why they would take any land given to them is it's just a little more encroachment, a little further that they have to push to finally drive Israel into the sea. We will not affect peace. It will only come when the true Prince of Peace returns to this world. He will bring peace. But we won't do it. Adonai Zedek is no Lord of Righteousness or King of Peace. And in Joshua 10, he goes out to make war against Gibeon. And why is he upset? Again, because Gibeon made peace with Israel. 
Gibeon is aligned with Israel, and so Adonai's debt goes against Israel. But he gets hammered. Number 7 in your listing, the downfall of Adonai Zedek. The downfall. Verse 7 of chapter 10 tells us, Joshua went up from Gilgal, and he said to all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. I've given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. And so Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel and he slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and pursued them by the way of the, of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And they fled from before Israel while they were at the descent of Beth Horon. The Lord, says, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. And there were more who died from the hailstones than those from whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword what was the Lord doing he was stoning the pagans throwing stones out of heaven were they meteorites I'm not sure but large stones fell out of the heavens and wiped out more of these men of Adonai Zedek than the Israelites killed with their swords it's amazing and it's another dramatic parallel because you read in Revelation 16.21 speaking of the last set of judgments huge hailstones about 100 pounds each came down from heaven upon men and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail because its plague was extremely severe 100 pounds each now I had a 16 pound bowling ball when I was a kid and that sucker was heavy can you imagine 100 pound hailstones just like happened in Joshua chapter 10 the stones falling from heaven in Revelation at the tail end of the tribulation again stones fall from heaven Adonai Zedek was wiped out Antichrist will be wiped out the parallel the parallel Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 let's get back there you guys still with me hanging in there? yeah good Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 then Joshua and I'm not going to say by the way today I'm not going to make the comment that I'm just about done because I say that every time and I say five or six times and I continue so I'm not even going to say it (laughs) Joshua chapter 2 verse 1 then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim saying go view the land especially Jericho and so they went and came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab and lodged there and Joshua chapter 2 is a fascinating story we're going to cover on Wednesday night about this woman Rahab who was a harlot who eventually makes her way into the genealogy of Jesus Christ which is so cool man if a harlot can get there I probably can I've got a hope it's an interesting story we will see this on Wednesday night but here Joshua sends two men in to spy out the land for conquest Joshua chooses two there were twelve sent by Moses we know what happened two came back saying yes let's do it and ten went oh we can't do it and they all failed now Joshua sends two in the same way the Lord is going to send and this is number eight in your list if you're keeping track of all this the Lord's going to send the dynamic duo Not Batman and Robin, but two men who are nameless in this story in Joshua chapter 2, but who are a portrait of two witnesses to come. You read about it in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, that's three and a half years, that's half of the tribulation, clothed in sackcloth. 
Now, I mean, that's probably going to be Elijah and Moses, but that's a discussion we can have another time. These two witnesses will share the truth on the streets of Jerusalem, just as the two spies shared the truth with Rahab. And you'll read this, you'll see this in the story. If, if you come Wednesday night and we study through this, they tell Rahab, you can be saved. You can be saved. But here's what you've got to do. You've got to hang a scarlet thread out your window. And when we come back in the conquest of Jericho, we're going to look up and we'll see that scarlet thread. Rahab's house was on the wall of the city. And so that scarlet thread would be a sign to the sons of Israel, don't take that house, protect the woman and her family that's in that house. And the spies say, as long as you stay in there and you've got the covering of the scarlet thread. And there's a fascinating scarlet thread that runs all the way throughout Scripture. It is a picture of the blood of Jesus Christ. That scarlet thread that saves. And Joshua records that the king of Jericho heard about the spies. And so Rahab hid the spies. She hid them and then sent them away to hide in the mountains. And they hid in the mountains, Joshua chapter 2 tells us, they hid in the mountains for three days. The witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 are going to prophesy what you have to do to be saved. And then they're going to be killed and they're going to lie dead on the streets of Jerusalem for... Three days. Three days they will lie there until eventually the Bible tells us they will rise again, they will resurrect, and then they will be raptured in the sight of all the nations of the earth. Everyone will see this. Now, 20, 30 years ago even, Bible scholars read that and thought, How's that gonna, how can everybody see what's happening in Jerusalem all at one time? <laughs> CNN. Yeah. Fox News, we got it covered. In real time, we watch everything happening anywhere in the world, and the world gang will be glued to their televisions. Those guys are moving. The corpses are getting some color in their face. They're standing up. They're going up. They're going to see the whole thing. But it was three days, just like the two spies hid out for three days before they came back. Going on, the division of the land. This is a quick one. Joshua chapter 13 through 21 speaks of the division of the land among all the children of Israel. And Ezekiel 47 verse 48, you might want to just jot that down. You can read it and study it on your own time if you choose to. Joshua 13 through 21, Ezekiel 47 and 48. Because Joshua 13 through 21, Joshua divides up the land among the children of Israel. And they go into their provided places. Ezekiel 47 and 48 prophesies the exact same thing will happen. The land will be divided up once again among the children of Israel at the time of the end. A future division of the land as Israel's inheritance in the coming millennial kingdom. That's number nine, the division of the land. Number ten... Number 10 in your list, the determination of the Lord. Now we're getting down to it. Joshua 21, verse 45. Joshua 21, verse 45. Joshua says this as he's preaching now at the very end of, of this book. And see, we've, it's amazing. We've done 22 chapters here. Aren't you impressed? At the end of chapter 21, verse 45, Joshua says, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. What a great verse. Awesome. Joshua said, remember the promises he gave us? Here you go. Fulfilled every one of them. This is what the Lord does. He determines his course. He determines his plan. He doesn't sway from it. And he fulfills everything he promises to fulfill. Just as was promised, it all came to pass perfectly just as God determined 
would happen. And Romans 11.25 tells us the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God says it's going to be done. You can count on it. It will be done. Psalm 37 verse 5 tells us, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. And He will do it. I love having a Father I can trust. I love having a Lord and a God that I can stand on the foundation of His promises and I know that He's going to follow through. And I know that He's not going to let me down. And you know what, gang? I'm going to let you down. And I let my family down. And you let each other down. From time to time, it's why we have to have grace and forgiveness to each other. But the Lord will never let us down. He determines His plan and follows through perfectly. Look at Joshua 23, verse 3. Joshua says, You have seen all the Lord your God has done to all these nations before you. For the Lord your God is He who has been fighting for you. Let's get down to verse 5. He says, The Lord your God, He will thrust them out from before you and drive them out from before you, just as you will possess their land, and just as the Lord your God has promised you. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book and the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left. Israel is in the land. They've received the promises. Joshua already said that. He said God did everything He said He would do. But now, now... Joshua says, you've got to keep fighting. You've got to hang with it. The, determine of the, the determination of the Lord, it has, it has been seen to be true. He's followed through. He's done everything. But now, Israel, Joshua says, now, gang, you've got to rule effectively and righteously. And suddenly, at the end of Joshua, we get thrust into this picture of the millennial kingdom coming back into the land. Ruling and reigning in a government that is beginning to be set up. The millennial kingdom, we will rule and reign over the lands with Jesus ruling directly from Jerusalem. Revelation chapter 20 verse 6 does tell us, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. We have a role to play in the coming millennial kingdom. Believers in Jesus, you will have a a sense of responsibility. You will have a role, a a place of authority. I think throughout the world, we'll be in different places. Jesus out of Jerusalem, but we'll be his, His government emissaries, as it were. I like North Whidbey Island, so I might just stay right here. Those of you who live here might have to find somewhere else to go. But we're going to have a role to play. The victory's won. The righteous government of Christ Jesus will be established. And we will be part of that ruling party. But ultimately gain something unbelievable will happen at the end of all of this. Shocking and surprising. And hard to understand until you know what God is about. Joshua 24 verse 14. After all is said and done. In this famous sermon Joshua says, Now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. He says if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served which are beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living but as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. What is Joshua doing here? He's giving them a decision and that's the final one on our list number 11 the decision of the world. You have a choice. 
God has given you every promise under the sun. He has fulfilled what He said He would fulfill. He's laid it out for you. But now the Lord says, you have a choice. I'll do it for you. I'll make it happen. You've got to choose it. Israel, you have the land. You're here, but you've got to want it. One of the tragedies is when we finish studying Joshua, we're going to go into Judges. And we're going to watch Israel fail miserably. The entire book of Judges summed up by one statement. It was in those days when Israel did not have a king. And they didn't even have a king in the Lord. And they blew it. They chose not to follow. The decision of the world. This is the final parallel. Because gang, at the end of the millennial kingdom, the Bible describes this thousand year reign of Christ. At the end of that, those born and raised during the millennium will have a choice to make. Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 tells us when the thousand years are completed Satan will be released from his prison he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth Gog and Magog and that's explained in the Revelation study too to gather them together for the war the number of them and this is breathtaking is like the sand of the seashore what's going on here the world will have been a thousand years in peace and prosperity under the reign of Jesus Christ the world will see and know unequivocally what it's like to live under the authority of Jesus the perfection the joy the splendor the glory of the Lord right here among us if you've ever been a person who's made this statement Lord I just wish you were here right now he will be he will be right there and mankind alive during the millennium and that by the way you and I having already been raptured already been glorified will be part of that government with Jesus we have already made our choice we are already set for eternity but those who are alive at the time in human form in the millennial kingdom will have a choice to make because after a thousand years of this perfect peace God does something unbelievable. He lets Satan out. Satan, who the Bible tells us is bound during that entire thousand year period at the end, the Bible says he must be released for a short time. Why, Lord? Why not just take... It's like a bad James Bond movie, you know? How the bad guy sits there and he's got a gun to James Bond's head and he doesn't fire it. He just starts talking and going into monologue until James Bond figures out a way to get out of it. And that's what this is like. You're like saying, Lord, just shoot him now. But you know, Jesus come back to Jerusalem, rule and reign, but take Satan. No, he doesn't. He finds him for a thousand years, and at the end of that time, he lets him go. Why? Two reasons. Love and grace. Love and grace. God's love requires a choice. God never forces anybody to follow him without knowing what the alternative is. And so after this time of perfection in the world, even like living for a thousand years, God lets Satan out and says, choose this day whom you will serve. And the number of people who will rebel against God will be like the sands of the seashore. It's incredible. He loves us that much that he would not force anyone into the kingdom of heaven. And His grace is so huge, gang, that it will be made eternally clear beyond any doubt that salvation came as an act of grace, not as an act of man's righteousness. There's not going to be a single person going on into eternity who can say, I got here because of what I did. But only, only because of the grace of our Father. Here's the good news today. You can know this now. 
You can choose this day whom you will serve. You can decide to follow Jesus because you know what's coming. He painted the picture for us in Joshua. He reveals what's coming in Revelation. And across the, the canopy or the, the canvas of history, Jesus lays this out and then he says, Be on the alert. Be ready. Choose today whom you will serve. Hebrews 10.37 Yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. Matthew 24.42 Jesus said be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Jesus Christ, our Joshua, he's coming and he's coming soon. Let's pray. Jesus and we'll spend some time here this morning going over these things it's so important Lord that we see that you have you have taken every measure so that we wouldn't miss what you're doing here so that we could know for certain that your coming is real and I praise you I thank you Lord for painting the picture in the historical account of Joshua that we can know and understand and see and make our choice God it's my prayer that we will choose you each of us on a daily basis even those those of us Father who we've made our decision for you may we awake every morning and choose again this day to serve you Lord and to trust you and to follow you we pray in Jesus name Amen